This is going to be a fantastic year for Britain, said Boris Johnson on the 2nd of January 2020. And it was just the first of many things he'd get disastrously wrong last year. Eleven weeks, five missed Cobra meetings and one bungled pandemic strategy later, the Prime Minister would find himself reluctantly locking down the nation. Even then, few, if any of us, quite realised the scale of what lay ahead. That it would be months before things even started to reopen. That it would be just the first of multiple nationwide lockdowns. And that one year on, in March 2021, we'd still find our pubs closed, our high streets shuttered and our government ordering us to stay home. As we mark the anniversary of the first coronavirus lockdown, you'll have seen people reflecting on how their own lives have changed sharing pictures of what they were doing this time last year, a special place they visited, the last time they hugged a certain person they love. But what of Westminster itself? What has a year of lockdowns done to our politics, to our crumbling palace of democracy, to the people that work in and around it each day? What's changed? What exactly have we lost? And more importantly, how much of it is ever coming back? Given this podcast episode is what my American overlords would call a season finale, I thought it'd be fun to head back into Parliament for the first time in months to try and find out. I spoke to everyone from senior ministers and MPs to the staff who cleaned the Commons Chamber. I spoke to elderly peers and young freelance journalists, to behind-the-scenes officials and to political TV stars. Everyone had a story to tell about the impact a year of lockdowns has had on the way they go about their work. And so, by extension, on the way we do politics in this country. From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard. And this week on Westminster Insider, we're looking at how the pandemic has changed Westminster itself and at whether British politics will ever be the same again. Well, I've just got off the train at Westminster and it's a strange feeling, actually. I haven't been here since the start of December. The station at this time, it's 8 o'clock in the morning, would normally be heaving. You know what it's like queuing just to get off the train. There's nobody here. There's literally three or four people wandering around. The big, cavernous, grey station. Looks a bit like the Batcave, if you know it. There's nobody in it. The streets of SW1 are quiet. The usual crowds of tourists and lines of taxicabs around Parliament Square replaced by half-deserted pavements with empty buses trundling by. I mean, there is quiet, there is tranquility, and then there is ghost town. This is Vivek Singh, founder and executive chef of The Cinnamon Club, the legendary Indian restaurant housed in what used to be a Victorian public library just around the corner from Parliament. It's just felt different. I can't describe it. It doesn't feel like August. It doesn't feel like holiday season. It doesn't feel like the weekend when people have just gone away to their country homes or whatever. It just feels empty and ghost town. And rather scary. It has felt really rather despondent in the last 12 months. In normal times, Singh's staff will be preparing for a busy lunchtime sitting, knowing full well the restaurant is a popular destination for MPs, cabinet ministers, lobbyists and journalists in need of a blowout lunch. 
Rarely have I been in the place and not seen a famous face or two from the political world, enjoying the heady mix of high-end Indian dining and red-hot political gossip. We just look at them as customers. Really, we don't really care whether they're politicians or not. They're being treated like anybody else and everybody else. No fuss, no selfies. <laughs> but suddenly, abruptly, in March of last year, everything ground to a halt. Few of us working in Westminster can have felt the personal impact of the pandemic as keenly as those running restaurants, cafes and pubs around the area. I have to say that we've been through a lot in the last 20 years, but nothing quite like this pandemic and, you know, and the winding down and everything else. It was a very weird, very, very strange feeling to see the streets just empty out in the way that they did and confidence just completely fizzle out in no time, you know, from going from serving 200, 250 people a night to, you know, see just completely come down to 100. And then I suppose my, the worst Wednesday of my life, I probably had less than 50 people in the dining room, never had it, never in the last 20 years. We went into lockdown and you were forced to close. Is that the first time you've had to close for like an extended period in 20 years? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I never thought that my tandoori ovens would ever die. <laughs> you know, we'll ever, <laughs> will not, there'll ever be a day when we won't be firing them, you know, since this, since the first day we fired them in, you know, 2001 or whatever. You know, it's heartbreaking. There is a lot of wastage that goes along. Every time you have to shut something at short notice, you know, it just takes its toll and it's not good for the, I mean, I, I speak as a restaurateur, as a chef. It's not great for the soul. The Palace of Westminster, just around the corner, has an equally deathly feel. It's normally the daily workplace of about 8,000 people, from the loftiest ermine-clad lord to the catering staff who make the tea, and it hosts another million or so visitors every year. But for much of the past 12 months, it's been near deserted, with tourists and guests banned, and with the vast majority of MPs, peers and their staff working from home. I'm just walking into Central Lobby now and normally be bustling with MPs and journalists, members of the public. There's nobody here. There's two security guards and that's it. This is the public area. It's the oldest parts of the palace where you normally have hundreds of people here taking pictures on tour groups, looking at some of the famous old statues of MPs and peers. It's just deserted at the moment. For many of us who work in Westminster... The moment our day-to-day -day lives changed completely came on March the 11th, 2020. Health Minister Nadine Dorries announced on social media last night she tested positive for coronavirus and was self-isolating. Suddenly this illness we'd been reading about, writing about, speculating about for weeks was right here among us and sweeping rapidly through SW1. And the Palace of Westminster with its Hogwartsian corridors, its packed chambers, its crowded voting lobbies, not to mention its elderly MPs and peers, was clearly a disaster waiting to happen. Within two weeks, after rushing through emergency pandemic laws, the House was put into recess. At that point, we really had no idea about how Parliament could come back at all. This is the leader of the Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg. We didn't know the level of seriousness, the level of the disease's infectiousness, and we knew that Parliament had its constitutional duty to do, so we were trying to work out anything that could get Parliament back in some form or another. These were uncharted waters. Nothing like this had ever happened before in 800 years of parliamentary representation. 
Well, that's what I thought, anyway. Well, I did look this up, and I did discover that um, we were suspended in the year that the Black Death arose. So is that, I can't remember whether it's 1347 or 1348, but in modern times, you're quite right, it was an unprecedented problem for Parliament, and one that we would have found it much harder to respond to prior to the technologies that are currently available being available. And technology, video conferencing technology to be specific, would prove the saviour for Parliament, just as it has been for so many of us trying to work from home since the pandemic struck. Mr Speaker, I I repeat... So I've come up now to the top of one cannon row where the Commons TV gallery can be found, and it is world away from the old palace of Westminster, although it's more or less next door. We've got this huge video bank of screens, and it looks very much like a TV nerve centre, which, of course, is what it is, and it's from here that team of staff watch over the House of Commons and cut from camera to camera to camera and make the hybrid parliament that we've all had to get used to over the past year. We had 11 days to to build the thing and then a go-live date, I think was 22nd of April. This is John Angeli, a former BBC journalist who's now director of the Parliamentary Broadcasting Unit. It's an unfeasibly short amount of time, the sort of project that if you were contemplating you would think about for a good year before executing and we had two weeks and it was a a bewildering sort of fast moving couple of weeks where everything just had to fall into place very very quickly this was tougher than setting up your average zoom call mps wanted the choice of joining debates from home or being in the chamber as normal which meant constructing a hybrid version of parliament beaming members into the commons on newly installed 60 inch tv screens John and his team found their role shift overnight from merely filming debates for channels like BBC Parliament to actually making them happen. We had the challenge of, OK, so you've got a member speaking on the floor of the House, a minister responding to an MP in their constituency. How are they going to hear? How are they going to see? And for that to work for the Speaker and his deputies so they could run the business of the chamber very, very smoothly without it looking like a farce. This has not always been a complete what success. What is going on? When are the banks going to act in the national interest? Acting President. Often his prime. I think the First Secretary, if you can get the best out of that, we'll all benefit. First Secretary. I thank my honourable friend. I'm pretty sure I got the gist, and, and he's right. The curfew, non-essential, uh, retail, gyms, personal. Have you pressed the button, Prime Minister? Have you pressed the button by mistake? <laughs> Yeah, there was a lot that members had to get their head around and it's quite stressful for them as well because you're being televised and broadcast, sometimes in high-profile events in either house. It was very unnerving, I think, for members contributing remotely. But they've they've all got used to it. We've got better at it as well. And most of them have got used to it. <laughs> yeah, most of them. Enabling MPs to vote was a whole separate problem to solve. The usual scenes of hundreds of them crowding into tiny voting lobbies each night evidently couldn't continue. Once it became clear the scale of what we were facing, it became pretty obvious pretty quickly that we wouldn't be able to vote in the way we had been doing for hundreds of years. This is Joanna Dodd, clerk of divisions in the House of Commons. She's one of the senior officials who oversees Parliament's archaic voting processes. And we were going to have to come up very quickly with an alternative. 
or as it turned out, several different alternatives um, in a period of literally weeks. And I think in normal times, we'd have taken months, if not years, to do a project like this. And was it stressful? It was incredibly stressful. I don't think I've ever been so stressed in my whole life as I was in sort of April, May, June last year. But it was also amazing to see what we could achieve in that timescale. I mean, I don't know that I'd quite want to do exactly that again. <laughs> because change doesn't normally happen in this building too quickly, does it? It doesn't, no. Change tends to happen at a fairly slow pace. So I think it was very, very different from the way we normally work to suddenly have to come up with all these solutions and then implement them, sometimes literally days later. But it turned out that actually we can do that. The first system trialled was remote voting allowing MPs to cast votes from their phones or iPads anywhere in the country. It worked, but Jacob Rees-Mogg, you'll be shocked to hear, was not a fan. The problem with remote voting is that some people took it quite frivolously and were tweeting that they were going for walks and things like that whilst voting, and I think that was damaging to the reputation of Parliament. The more cynical among you might think the government's difficulties in keeping its backbench MPs in order when they're all miles away from Westminster may also have had something to do with it. But anyway, remote voting was quickly dropped. Other systems were then trialled, with varying degrees of success. So this is the queue for the new voting system, which tells all around the outside of Westminster Hall, through the colonnade, out towards Parliament Square, and now back into Westminster Hall. And we're probably going to be here till it's dark. Finally, a compromise was found allowing MPs to vote quickly in person via digital card readers, a bit like beeping in when you get on the tube. Jacob Rees-Mogg suggests the system is probably here to stay. It seems to me that works really well. It saves six clerks being on duty sometimes at antisocial times, and it's a little bit faster, so I see no reason not to continue with that. He's less receptive, however, to MPs who want the hybrid debates to continue beyond the pandemic. It makes life much too easy for ministers that there's no real challenge to ministers without the full chamber, the interventions, the spontaneity. And I'm afraid the speeches are also pretty boring because they're not debates, they're people reading out a speech that they prepared the day before, they're not responding to points made by the previous speakers. So my view is, in the flesh, face-to-face dealings are better. But it sounds like virtual debates could yet make a return if and when the much-delayed renovation of the Commons Chamber finally gets underway. There's one thing we can learn, and that is hybridity may be a cheaper option than another chamber during restoration and renewal, and we certainly shouldn't ignore that possibility, depending on how large the saving is. And last question, if I may. Um, How has the year of lockdowns been for yourself personally? You've got a large family, some distance away. Travel's been difficult. We've been locked down. How have the Rees-Mogs coped with it all? Well, I've been very lucky because I've had my work to go into when Parliament's been sitting. And I also recognise my good fortune in that in Somerset we have a garden and therefore the children have had somewhere to play. But I think that homeschooling has been difficult for all families. It was fine last summer when it was new and it was exciting and it was nice weather. My children got pretty bored in January and February and were really thrilled to get back. And as the burden mainly fell on my wife because I was in Parliament, I think she was quite pleased too. I'm struggling to imagine the Rees-Mogg children parked in front of a PlayStation or an Xbox for hours on end, though. Is that fair? If only you were right. I'm afraid the image and the reality on this don't match. 
I was uh, sitting at home over the weekend and um, all of my children, including the three-year-old, were on electronic items of one kind or another. So I'm afraid I'm just as much a failure as a father in this respect as most of my fellow citizens. Does dad ever get roped into a computer game or two? Very occasionally, yes. What do you play? Oh, I'm not very good at any of them. Um, Crossy Road is the one that my three-year-old was having a go at, and I must confess he's already better at it than I am. Coming up in part two, we'll hear from ITV's Robert Peston on the joys of Downing Street press conferences, from freelance journo Marie Leconte on the disastrous shortage of political gossip when everyone's working from home, and from the outgoing Lord Speaker, Norman Fowler, on trying to bring the dusty upper chamber into the Zoom era at the grand old age of 83. Stay with us. In the world of politics and policy, information is abundant. Insight is rare. Politico's premium policy intelligence service, Politico Pro, is designed for public affairs professionals. Our expert team keeps you one step ahead of the powers and players driving the policy decisions impacting your industry. From financial services to trade, technology, cybersecurity, and more, Politico Pro delivers breaking scoops, deep analysis, and forward-looking insight across a range of sectors. Want to learn more? Westminster Insider listeners can benefit from a two-week complimentary trial of Politico Pro. Simply email pro at politico.co.uk with the code Westminster. Again, that's pro at politico.co.uk. It was the TV sensation that no one saw coming. For a few short weeks last spring and summer, with Britain in lockdown and the nation gripped by the unfolding pandemic, there really was only one show that mattered on the telly. Prime Minister, first slide, please. Can I have the next slide, please? Next slide, please. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. Can I have the next slide, please? Night after night, we tuned in to shout, sob, cringe and rage at the spectacle that was the daily coronavirus briefing from 10 Downing Street, featuring a now-familiar all-star cast of ministers, scientists and TV journos. We had Boris's ill-judged bluster, Pretty's numerical nonsense, JVT's football metaphors, and more Matt Hancock than anyone could ever have imagined they'd have to put up with. At times, it felt like the daily press conference was the only constant of our strange new lockdown lives. So how did it feel to be one of the main characters in the show? Truthfully, as a journalist, it was a very frustrating experience. This is Robert Peston, political editor with ITV News, and a regular face beamed into Downing Street on that famous flat-screen telly. Ministers, Prime Minister, even, you know, the Chief Scientific Advisor and the Chief Medical Officer, although it was less true of them, quite often didn't answer the questions. As a journalist, it's just so annoying to ask something and be confronted with obfuscation, particularly on issues as big as that. The constant rotation of scientists and other experts made them especially difficult to hold to account. I remember really early on asking a question about, you know, people losing their sense of smell and getting a really hopeless answer from one of the scientists basically just said, well, well, we don't know enough about it. And then X weeks later, the same scientist would turn up and say, oh, you know, it's terribly important if you've lost your sense of smell that you've got to stay at home. 
And somehow there was never an opportunity to say to those people, why did it take you so long? There was a point last summer when we were all watching those things every night when the level of vitriol aimed not at the politicians, but at the journalists asking the question seemed to briefly peak very highly. And I remember certain former Tory uh, advisors all piling in as well. Were you aware of that, that you were being targeted with abuse yourself? Or is that just par for the course for you guys anyway? Look, online abuse of people like us has got worse and worse and worse. You know, one of my daily tasks is not to read what people are saying about me on Twitter because so much of it is just so horrible. And, you know, I'm pretty sure, you know, I speak for almost everybody Actually, we were not doing, you know, what people were describing as gotcha journalism. We were just trying to find out most of the time what we could about government policy and, you know, what was actually happening. And to be accused of trying to trip them up, I mean, it was just weird and mad. And then at a later stage, when things were going wrong and one felt that one did have to slightly hold them to account. We were then accused, sometimes by the same people, of not being quite tough enough. I mean, you can't win, I'm afraid. And the only way you can actually cope if you do what I do is I'm afraid not to take it too seriously. And I guess one of the outcomes or one of the, you know, one of the consequences of this pandemic long term looks to be that we're now going to get these televised briefings every night, a slightly different form with the PM's new spokeswoman. Do you think that's going to be positive going forward? I honestly don't know, Jack. I mean, you are somebody who for years has attended the private briefings. And I have to tell you, I do think that if those private briefings simply got translated into television, most people watching would lose the will to live (laughs) because so much of it is basically all of us asking the same question 4,000 ways and not being answered 4,000 times. I mean, if we don't all change and it doesn't become, you know, more of a genuinely open forum where we learn things, then I don't think any of us will emerge from this with any credit. While established political journalists like Peston had to adapt existing ways of working to suit the new reality, for those still making their way as hacks the pandemic has been nothing short of disastrous. I mean, it's mostly been dreadful, to be honest, because I basically had no work for, like, several months. Marie LeConte is a freelance journalist in her 20s who's made a name writing feature articles on life in Westminster for just about every publication under the sun. She's an absolute fixture on the SW1 social scene, a familiar face at every white wine reception or every leaving do down the red lion, and someone so into political gossip that she literally wrote a book on the subject. I think I kind of sit somewhere slightly interesting in that I write about politics full time, but I've never been in the lobby. Sometimes I feel like, you know, sort of like charming uh, neighbourhood stray cats and sometimes just like a random creep. But most of the stuff I do comes from me going to drinks receptions, going to the pubs, going for coffee with people, etc. So as a result, Parliament being shut and everything being shut has made my job quite a lot harder because I normally rely on just, you know, endless chats with people nearly in the street, let's be honest. I've had to have a number of sort of embarrassing conversations with editors who've said, oh, by the way, you know, do pitch us more stuff. You know, we'd love to publish you more. And I said, well, you know, that's very kind, but I don't have anything to write about. Thankfully, I was eligible for the self-employed grant. But that was a complete lifesaver. If you're someone who doesn't necessarily know quite how 
journalism works and especially freelance journalism works you might think well marie you can ring people up you can text them you can get on a zoom call like we are now why should it matter that you can't see them in person people may have this idea of journalism of you know you're kind of walking around in your trench coat and your hat with a little you know press card in it and then some mp will say you know have you heard this thing or you know i've got this story for you and it's not really what happens you know what happens is that you meet up with someone for a drink for coffee for lunch and you just kind of have a chat and then across the course of that chat something may come up you know I think I've always thought my most productive time is the bus home from Westminster at sort of like circa 9pm on a Tuesday where I've had precisely three glasses of wine at a reception and I'm on the bus home and I'm quite hungry and slightly tipsy and I'm like okay what did I learn tonight and I kind of think and I'm like okay who did I talk to was there anything interesting there in the morning I'd wake up bright and early and get in touch with one of my editors and say hey had this idea for a piece, I think this quite interesting thing is happening in Westminster. Do you want me to dig into it? And once you lose that, you know, it's quite hard to know where to look really for stories. Have you missed the social side of it on a sort of human level as well? I have missed it so much. And I know that I'm definitely like quite far on one end of the spectrum there. You know, I'm one of those people who genuinely enjoys conference. I'm very unashamed in my love for the social side of Westminster. But, you know, I found myself, actually, I think a particularly low point was, I think I was scrolling on Instagram or something, and I saw a picture of this journalist. I absolutely loathe, like, lobby journalist. And generally, I just had this involuntary reaction. I went, oh, because I, I was just so pleased to see their face. And again, this is someone I hate. Like, I, it's got to the point where I miss people I hate. <laughs> And on that front, do you think it's had a particularly tough impact on younger people in political life? I know you know lots of researchers and those kind of younger people who work in politics. And I imagine that for them who love the social side so much, that it must be really difficult. I know, absolutely. And I think it's probably higher stakes as well for younger people, people who are quite new to Westminster, because they're still in the process of building their network. That's kind of the stage where you go out a lot, you know, be that at the sports and social at the beginning or in strangers or in one of the many, many pubs. You know, they probably feel not unreasonably that careers have stalled to an extent over the past year. And also, you know, a lot of them work very long hours for terrible, terrible money. And they don't even get to see the fun side of it because that's normally the deal, isn't it? Actually, quite often the job will be quite dull but on the other hand, that you know, you'll be able to share corridors with secretaries of state, you'll get gossip about MPs and ministers and stuff, which, you know, if you're a political obsessive and quite young, like, obviously that's the dream. And I do feel that, especially for those young people, like they've completely lost all the fun side. So I do feel, yeah, tremendously sorry for them. To make matters worse for these underpaid staff, their workloads have gone through the roof this past 12 months. Tory backbencher Robert Halfon, who we spoke to back in episode four, said the sheer volume of desperate letters and emails from constituents hit hard by the pandemic has been immense. I'm not complaining because it's my duty to deal with it, but there has been nothing ever like it. You know, I mean, nothing. The amount that comes in and we spend most of our time just dealing with the emails. And the problem is every time the rules change, people find them very confusing. So they go to their MP to ask them for advice. Are MPs themselves more stressed having to deal with this than they normally would be, do you think? I hesitate to say and be distressed because we're lucky. We're all being paid. I'm behind a computer. I've got a laptop at home. So how can I complain when I've got the refuse workers going out, the post men and women, delivery people, people on low income losing their jobs. So yes, of course, it's difficult for everyone. But compared to what most people are going through, I think we have it OK. Halfon has cerebral palsy and was advised by the NHS to spend much of the past year at home. 
he found some personal benefits, at least, in the shift to remote working. When it all started, the only thing I knew about was BlackBerry Messenger and Skype. <laughs> I'd never even heard of Zoom before or MS Teams. I didn't, wouldn't have a clue what they were. And now it's like it's a way of life. I mean, there are some things which are really handy for me because obviously those who know me know I have uh, leg difficulties. If I have to go miles away, I often don't go to meetings. And I have been to a lot more meetings than I would have done because they've been on online. And that's why I hope that some of it is here to stay. Not everyone at the House of Commons has been able to work from home. Security staff, catering workers and others central to keeping the building running have been in every day, just as before. For the cleaning teams in particular, it's been intensive work, with every surface to be disinfected like never before. So I've just walked all the way up to the very top of the Palace of Westminster and we're scurried away now in a little meeting room with a wonderful big window looking out across the Thames. I can see the water glistening. I can see Westminster Bridge with almost nobody on it. And in this room, I'm going to be meeting Imelda Hughes, who's the cleaning supervisor for the House of Commons. And while we're waiting for it to arrive, I'm just looking around at the pictures of all these old men who used to edit the Hansard, the parliamentary record. And there's sort of a House of Commons chaise long which I'm about to sit on while we wait for Imelda to arrive. Here she comes now. My name is Imelda Hughes. I am the cleaning supervisor in the Heritage Cleaning Team. Imelda is great. She's from the Philippines originally, but has worked in Parliament the past five years. She tells me how she had to cancel flights home last May because of the pandemic, that she's been worrying about her family over there, and they've been worrying about her. She's so serious about her job that when she sees the state of the disused office we've arranged to meet in, she rushes off to grab a cloth for a quick wipe round. Every day, we are the first to come to uh, the office. We come at 6 o'clock in the morning where everybody is still uh, asleep. And uh, the place is very quiet as well. So we own the place, cleaning it, making sure that everything is uh, taken off, rubbish and everything. So the chamber, back of the chair, speaker's office, prime minister's, all the ministerial rooms. It must be, for someone who doesn't work here, they must think it's amazing that you'd be in the chamber cleaning those famous seats and benches. Is that fun the first time you do it? Yes, actually, I never had in my life to be here in my, like, was I dreaming when I went here? <laughs> was I dream? I'm cleaning the palace. I said, <laughs> so I said to my husband, like, did you believe I'm, I'm cleaning the palace? And then suddenly, last year, everything just changes. The pandemic comes, people stop coming here. What was that like? Was it strange to be coming here and seeing it so empty? It was a bit strange, yeah. Sometimes you feel like, are we the only people here? Us <laughs> so, and the security, of course. So, But on the other hand, we have the time to clean more the rooms. And also, during the pandemic, some of us got infected as well, some of the cleaners, so... We struggled a little bit, but then we managed to cope up with the uh, cleaning standard. Did you feel, because for someone like me, I can do my job, I'm a journalist, I can work from home, so I've hardly come in here the last year, just a few times, like today. You've had to come in every day. Did you feel nervous, like scared sometimes, when everyone else is being told to stay at home and you have to go into work every day? For me personally, no, I didn't feel (laughs) scared at all, yes. I was, because... Most of us are focused on the job itself. So in absence of some of our team members, our thinking was 
to do our job well. Did any of your colleagues feel nervous? To some of them, yeah, saying? yeah, they were, they were, they were because they had these um, experiences on the train. They said the train was full packed most of the time, early morning, even five o'clock in the morning. It's all like side by side, people are uh, getting on the train, so and some were not wearing masks, so they were scared. Do you feel sort of? Your job feels more important now. Do you feel sort of proud that you've managed to keep this building running even in a pandemic? Yes, we are very proud of ourselves that even the speaker gave us a award for outstanding contribution in the palace because um, I think everywhere in our country the cleaners are being recognized to be mostly doing what we can do in order to keep the environment clean and healthy and COVID-free, hopefully. (laughs) Nowhere has this been more important than the House of Lords, where the demographic of members makes them especially vulnerable to COVID. For my final interview, I headed through the red-carpeted corridors of the Upper House to the cavernous wood-panelled office of the Lord Speaker himself, Norman Fowler. Health Secretary under Margaret Thatcher, Fowler is in his 80s now, but remains as sharp as a tack and brimming with stories to tell sitting beside quite literally the largest fireplace I have ever seen, beneath an ornate ceiling as high as your average two-bedroom house, he considered how life has changed this past year. There were simply not the people to talk with that you used to have. I mean, the great thing about the House of Lords was that you could uh, pick up the gossip of what was taking place, and not just gossip either. And that uh, uh, has uh, changed radically. Discussions at the long table where you just went in, sat at a long table, had lunch or dinner, and talked to whoever you were next to. That just went. I mean, it just wasn't possible to do anymore. That was an enormous um, disadvantage. And I might say, although I'm not a great boozer, uh, the Bishop's Bar, you know, which is the informal drinking place for the House of Lords, only members of the House of Lords. Again... You know, it was wonderful. After a really hard day, you could go in, you could sit down, and you could have a drink with your mates. But that just went. So both those things, both those personal things, were formidable minuses uh, in the life 12 months ago. And I guess the House of Lords must have felt, you know, thinking back to that time, especially when it was all so new in February and March and April, the House of Lords was especially vulnerable because so many older people here compared to the Commons. Were you well aware of that? Well, I suppose I was, but I I tended to rebel against that because I'm not exactly a young man myself. And at the age of uh, 82, 83, I slightly, ever so slightly, resented the implication that anyone over the age of 70 was um, infirm and about to go under. So I needed a little persuasion on that one, to be perfectly honest. But... When I remember when I went for my first jab at Guy's Hospital. You only have to go there and see the people who are also having their first jab. There are a lot of people who are in difficult situations, are frail, are clearly not particularly well, and so you know I was converted to it. Just like the Commons, the Lords has had to adapt to a new world of Zoom debates, hybrid sittings and all the rest. It hasn't been the easiest transition for the often elderly peers. We've all seen a few comedy moments, though, where the members have 
messed up the Zoom thing or something's gone wrong? Have you had a quiet chuckle to yourself once or twice watching those? Well, I don't, I'm part of the organisation, so to speak. I don't chuckle really very much about Lord speakers don't get, chuckle. I get extremely concerned, you know, when I'm saying, Mr Brown, oh no, sorry, Lord Brown, Lord Brown, can you hear me? <laughs> and all that. I mean, I now just move on quite rapidly. To begin with, I found that kind of a bit disconcerting. But, I mean, there were bound to be mistakes. But it doesn't take away from the vast achievement of these guys. I mean, you know, in much less than a year, they've got a really, really good system going. I don't think we should ignore some of the advances that have been made. For example, I've always taken the view that select committees themselves are amongst the most important things that are done either in the House of Lords or in the House of Commons. And now we have the ability to be able to question, in a meaningful way, people internationally, let alone in this country. So rather than getting on a train to Birmingham or getting on a plane to um, Australia or India or somewhere like that, uh, you can do it perfectly well without that. That's a tremendous advance. So perhaps there are some positives we can take away from the whirlwind of the past 12 months. New ways of doing politics which look like they're here to stay. In a post-Covid world, our MPs and peers will vote more quickly and efficiently than they ever did before. Attend meetings online that they can't get to in person. Interrogate select committee witnesses on the other side of the world. A small fortune could be saved if hybrid debates prove part of the solution when the refurbishment of Parliament finally gets underway. And for better or for worse, it looks like televised Downing Street press briefings are here to stay. There was one thing that united every person I spoke to this week, from the common staff to the Lord Speaker himself. Absolute joy at the thought of life finally flooding back into Westminster later this year. Oh my God, yes. I'm so looking forward to a return to hopefully a a bit of normality. House of Commons clerk, Joanna Dodd. And yeah, although I've actually personally quite enjoyed coming into the office, it'd be nice to have some of my colleagues back as well and just to to see a few more people again and... Yeah. Jacob Rees-Mogg. I'm actually looking forward, though my ministerial friends may not appreciate this, for ministers being given a slightly tougher time. I think hybrid parliament is an absolute boondoggle for ministers because the spontaneity that makes questions difficult is just not there. And that's what makes parliament exciting too, is that moment in a packed chamber where a minister is at the dispatch box and somebody intervenes with what could be a fantastic point and the good minister comes back to the dispatch box and deals with it. Sort of Michael Gove, who just confidently cover-drives it for four against perhaps the more diffident minister um, who lobs it up to cut gully. And here's Marie LeConte. I am extremely excited. I was actually having a chat with one of my closest friends in Westminster when I was like, OK, so we know when the pubs are reopening but when is the earliest we can go for pints in Westminster without it being tragic? So we thought, you know, the, the, the first <laughs> night, we, we can't go back on the first night, you know, we, we, yeah, we have to play it cool. But it's like, you know, at what point? So we're kind of thinking maybe the third night? <laughs> um, I was, I mean, I, I was thinking cans of beer on, uh, on Parliament Square as soon as we're allowed at the end of March, <laughs> isn't it? That would actually be quite fun. I, you know what? I'd not thought of that. So, roll on the summer, eh? It'll be jabs in the arms and beers and political gossip in the sunshine before you know it. Genuinely, I can hardly wait. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and leave us a comment too. This episode was produced by Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my managing editor is James Randerson. The podcast's taking a break now for a few weeks, but we'll be back with a whole new season later next month with more big interviews and more deep dives into the inner workings of Westminster. I'll see you then.